And now, Father, we come once again to the Gospel of John because we would see Jesus. And so we ask you now, Father, to reveal him, to unfold this truth before us in a way that reveals to us the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we have not come this morning to learn practical truths of living. We sometimes do that. But today, O oh Father, give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. And that in itself will affect every practical area of living. Turn our hearts, Father, away from the world and away from ourselves and fix them squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ. May we indeed do what we just sang. Lord, may we be lost in wonder, love, and praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things we ask for your glory and in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 17. If you could stand with me, and uh, we will read verses 1 through 5. John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes up to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. May that is blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. What do you think the Son of God might say to the Father the night before he would offer himself up as a sacrifice for sin for the world? What would he say? He came on mission from the Father. And now it's time. The hour has come. And you have a little while to talk to the Father. What would he say? Well, the answer to that question is right here in John chapter 17. The entirety of it. 26 verses in, and every single verse. Except for that brief introduction in, in verse 1. But even half of that verse and all the rest of this chapter is nothing but a prayer of Jesus Christ, communication with his Father. This is what John 17 is about. I'm calling this message the real Lord's Prayer because in Matthew 6, that passage that so many of us learned from childhood and have called the Lord's Prayer and that so many churches repeat every week as the Lord's Prayer is is actually a prayer that Jesus never prayed. In fact, he could not have prayed that prayer because at one point in the prayer, the prayer says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And, and that's, a, that's a confession of sin, which Jesus, of course, never had. And so if you really want to meditate on a prayer that Jesus actually prayed, 
the best place to turn is arguably John chapter 17. This is the real Lord's Prayer, if we can call it that. And we began wading into the deep waters of this press time and discovered, even from the first verse, that one of the really, this is one of the deepest, most significant passages of Scripture found anywhere in the New Testament. It is often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Westcott calls it the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture and the holy of holies of the New Testament. MacArthur calls it the most profound and magnificent prayer of the New Testament. Luther said, this prayer is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom. The German reformer Philip Melanchthon wrote, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. Lenski said of this 26-verse prayer, its serenity and majesty and its authority befit only the heart and lips of him who is the Son of God. Before this prayer, all our prayers fade like candles before the sun. And J.C. Ryle said, it is the most remarkable chapter in the Bible. It stands alone and there is nothing like it. It is unequaled for depth and scope in all of the scriptures. It just makes you want to memorize this passage, right? And meditate on it for the rest of your life. These were the, the, jo- the dying thoughts of John Knox. He meditated in those final days of his life on nothing but John chapter 17. With that in mind, beloved, let us approach this chapter once again in a spirit of humility and of worship as Jesus takes us into the very secret place of the tabernacle of the Most High God. The context of this passage is of paramount importance. Jesus is perhaps only a few hours away from being arrested. He's been with his men since chapter 13 in the upper room. His arrest will eventually lead to the crucifixion that very next morning, after this prayer, less than 24 hours. Knowing that his hour was at hand, he spent his final night with his his disciples, teaching and exhorting and encouraging them with his last words for what lay ahead. And they had no idea what lay ahead. They had no idea what was about to take place, but Jesus knew all too well the price that he must pay and the suffering he must take upon himself to bear the sin of the world. In this first of three sections, Jesus prays for himself. In the second section, he prays for his apostles, his disciples. And in the third section, he prays for us. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? But here in this first section, Jesus prays for himself. And last week, I attempted to get through these five verses and only made it through one. And so let's start there again, and we'll take another run at this. (laughs) Number one, Jesus asks for restored glory. It's interesting, this section starts with Jesus asking for restored glory and finishes with Jesus asking for restored glory. And as I I said last time, my purpose 
My purpose in this message, or now what's turning out to be a series of messages, is to help us see something of the glory of Christ. I loved the singing this morning. I love it when our worship team puts together songs that give expression of the Christian heart to the God revealed in Jesus Christ and specifically the glory of Christ as we discover in this prayer in John 17. We have come to see the glory of Christ. This is without question the most important thing in the Christian life. Being a faithful son or daughter of God is not first. It's not first about obeying the law. It's not first about listening to sermons. It's not first about praying or singing or even evangelism. It's not first about missions or anything else. The highest privileged and most important duty of the Christian life is to behold the glory of the risen Christ. He's everything to us. He's everything. And that's not sentiment. That's Bible. The Apostle Paul said he is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. He said all of that in one verse, 1 Corinthians 1.30. He is our all in all, he will say in Colossians. John Owen, in his little book, The Glory of Christ, writes this, Only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. The hearts of believers are like a magnetized needle which cannot rest until it is pointing north. So also a believer magnetized by the love of God will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. I'll not take time to re-preach what we talked about last week. I will say, however, that I could not touch anything that I said last week and re-preach verse 1 and fill the hour. I won't preach them, but we should be reminded that we see Christ's glory in just about every word of this text. For example, the very first word he prayed, Father, Father, that points to Jesus' unique and intimate relationship with God himself as a personal father. It also pointed to the fact that, that he is God the Son, the Son of God. He is equal, therefore, with God. Furthermore, it also pointed to the fact that as the Son of God, he was equal with God, and yet it is, it is also true that he is distinguished from the Father in terms of personhood. We understand that in the Godhead, there are three persons. One in essence, there is one God, but three in person, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in this, we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. He is a member of the Trinity. We learn, too, that Jesus spoke of his hour. He was speaking of the appointed time that would manifest his glory more than anything else that he had ever done. It was, as Owen explains, the hour in which the Son of Man would terminate his labors by rendering the one and only atoning sacrifice for sin for mankind. It was the hour of fulfilling prophecy. 
It was the hour of fulfilling types and symbols, the hour of triumph over the prince of this world, and the hour of dismissing the old covenant and ushering in the new. This is why it is glory. This is why we look at the Son of God and we see glory. All of this, all of this, like a hurricane of prophetic events was spinning around the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the blazing center of the created universe. Everything revolves around him. Every planet, every star, every activity, every circumstance, every word of God, every moment of suffering, it all spins and finds its orbit around Jesus Christ. Spurgeon's eloquence on this passage, on this point, is unmatched. That this act of self-sacrifice for sin of the world For it, God would glorify his son. Here's what Spurgeon says. When you think of the physical agonies, the mental torture of his spiritual darkness, when you consider all the powers of earth and hell that were laid loose upon him, and when, worst of all, you remember that the father's face was hidden from him till he cried out, why have you forsaken me? And yet consider that our champion, having begun the redeeming work, went through it and never drew back his hand from the covenant which he had made or flinched under the stroke he bore. I say to you, he was glorious in his passion. And his prayer was heard. The father did glorify his son, even on the cross. This was an hour of glory that might dazzle angels' eyes that hour when he said, it is finished, and gave up the ghost. What had he finished? He had finished that which saved his people. He had peopled heaven with immortal spirits who should delight in him forever and have shaken the gates of hell. God indeed glorified the Son in enabling him to bear and bear so well all the weight of sin and the penalty that was due it. I wish I had said that. That's why I quote Spurgeon. Yes, beloved, the son prayed, Father, glorify your son. And his prayer was heard. The father glorified him. Through the cross, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus would be restored. He would have his glory restored. The glory that he had before the creation of the world. And he did not do it merely to glorify himself. But as always, his father would be glorified in him. And Jesus always lived to glorify his father. So Jesus prays for restored glory. Number two, Jesus acknowledges divine authority, his own divine authority. Look at verse two. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Okay, so there's a whole sermon in itself. What it means to be the son, the mediator, 
the Messiah of God, is that Jesus has absolute authority over all people, authority to give to them eternal life. Where does eternal life come from? In a narrow sense, it comes from Jesus because he alone has the authority to give it. Remember Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The reason Jesus could accomplish his work as mediator and Messiah is that the Father had given him all authority to do so, which means that our evangelistic work, our disciple-making work, all of it is guaranteed to be successful in the eyes of God. Because none of it is done by our own authority. It is all accomplished, if it is accomplished at all, in any single human heart. If it is accomplished, it is accomplished by Jesus Christ. He alone has the authority to give eternal life. The reason Jesus could accomplish his work as mediator and Messiah was because he possessed all authority. So if you want to see Christ's glory, consider the depth of his authority, the scope of his authority. Consider the fact that the Father gave him authority to give eternal life. And to whom does he give eternal life? He gives eternal life. Look at the text. Even as you gave him authority, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that too, all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. To whom does he give eternal life? To all whom the Father has given him. To all whom the Father has given him. Now, there's no way around this, beloved. There's no way around this. Can we just step into a doctrine that's really controversial for a couple of minutes? This speaks to the mystery of divine election. Now, it's important for us to take a a bit of time on this one. Not too much time, but enough to kind of poke through this a little bit. There are some who don't believe in divine election because they want to preserve the, the doctrine of man's freedom. And, and I get that. None of us wants to think of ourselves as robots, and indeed we are not robots. I understand that. And no one wants to believe that God might do anything that makes him out to be unjust. And I think that's, that's a big motivator for people who resist divine election because it, it appears to them that if that is true, then God must be unjust. And we know that's not true. And so I, I understand the struggle. And here's what happens. We look at it and we say, there's danger here, there's danger here. So, how do I interpret it? I, I redefine the terms and I make a logical order of things in my mind. If this is true, then this must be true. 
And I would just say, be careful with that. Because you are not the inspirer of the word of God. We must take our explanations from God himself. And where it seems like God's word leaves us without the answers that we desire, then we have to be satisfied with that. And so here's, here's what we see. And I'm just going to stay in John, and I'm just going to stay on this terminology because I think that will help us. Um, there are some um, who, when they think election, they will say that um, that while it's true that that those who whom God gives the Son will be saved, it may also be true they say that some who are not given to the Son will also be saved. And by that, I think what they mean is most of those who are saved come to Christ because of the initiative of the Father, but some are bright enough or the inner light wells up within them or something that gives them the impulse apart from God giving them to the Son whereby they themselves come to the Son. And, and that's an odd teaching. But it gives us a little bit of scope here. So let's, let's look at the text. John 17, 2. We read, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all you have given him, he may give eternal life. So Jesus gives eternal life to all that the Father has given him. But turn back with me to John chapter 6. Because the same terminology is used in John 6. And this also is Jesus' teaching. Look particularly at verse 37. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So, what, what can we make of this? All of the given come. Everyone that God the Father gives to the Son, without exception, all of them come to Christ. And furthermore, none of them will be lost. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. He will not be lost, verse 39, by Jesus casting anyone out who has been given him by the Father. That'll never happen. And they will never be lost simply because in verse 39, Jesus says, I won't lose any of them. And later he'll say, except the son of perdition, who was designated as such from before the creation of the world. But that's a different sermon. So Jesus gives eternal life to all who are given. All the given shall come. None of them will be lost. And none of them can come 
unless they are given. Isn't that what he says in verse 65? Look at verse 65. And he was saying to them, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So, in that obscure case where there is a particular denomination that says, yes, all who come to the, or all whom the Father gives will come, but there are some who will come who have not been given, and Jesus says, that's not true, because I tell you that no one, no one, no one can come unless he is given. Jesus gives eternal life to all who are given. The given always come. None of them shall be lost, and no one can come unless they are given. That, that pretty much seals it up, doesn't it? It's pretty much an ironclad argument for unconditional election. And the believer's security, the believer's security is here. I say security in part because what Jesus is giving is eternal life. He does not give, notice the terminology here, is eternal life, not heavenly life. He's not saying, I will give you life in heaven. No, no, no. He's saying, I give you eternal life, which means it doesn't start when you get to heaven. It starts now, the moment you believe. The moment you repent and believe, eternal life starts now. You say, well, I thought eternal life was all about heaven. We haven't gotten to verse 3 yet, but we're going to see what eternal life is. This is the glory of Jesus' authority. The idea of eternal life means that we cannot lose our salvation, because it is eternal. If you have it, you always will have it. We don't say once saved, always saved. We say if saved, always saved. This is the glory of Jesus' authority. And all attempts to thwart it are, as one commentator said, weaker than a cobweb over a loaded cannon's mouth. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we understand this completely or that there isn't any mystery here. We're human, and we're talking about divine truth. Uh, A.W. Tozer, I I love to say this sometimes, A.W. Tozer says, words creak and groan under the weight of the glory of Christ. And Spurgeon, in his inimitable style, I discovered this week, said, When it comes to the glory of Christ, words are stupid. (laughs) Tozer sounds better, but Spurgeon. (laughs) J.C. Ryle is sensitive to this, and he says this. It is needless to say that the chapter before us contains many deep things. It can hardly be otherwise. He that reads the words spoken by one person of the blessed Trinity to another person, by the Son of God to the Father, must surely be prepared to find much that he cannot fully understand, much that he has no line to fathom. 
There are sentences, words, expressions in the 26 verses of this chapter which no one probably has ever unfolded completely. We have not minds to do it or to understand the matters it contains if we could. But there are great truths in this chapter which stand out clearly and plainly on its face. And to these truths, we shall do well to direct our attention. Or as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, um, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may obey them. There is enough here that we do understand. And say what you will about God's election, you can't get around you can't get around the difficulty of trying to get your head wrapped around this glorious thing. It is unfathomable, and it is amazing, and it is glorious. And so in the mystery of his gracious providence, the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ that God has ordained for him, God has given him Many sons, redeemed by the effectual calling, he gives men and women to himself, and he gives them to his son, who possesses the authority to save and to keep every one who is given him so that none will be lost. This is the Father. Father, they are yours, and you have given them to me. They are mine, and I give them eternal life. They live with us. There is a rejoicing throughout John chapter 17, the Father rejoicing in the Son, the Son rejoicing in the Father, the Spirit rejoicing in everyone, the, the children of God rejoicing in Christ and the Spirit and the Father for all eternity. And it is hard. It is hard to put it in words. All of those who, will, who are given to him by the Father will come, and none of them will be lost. Beloved, do you realize, do you realize how secure you are? Do you realize how secure you are? This is God who is doing the saving. It's not you. Once again, I turn to Spurgeon to help me say it. And here's what he writes. Is it not a most wonderful guarantee of the safety of everyone for whom Christ died that the glory of Christ and the glory of Father, and may I add, the glory of the blessed Spirit are all equally concerned in the salvation of the believing soul? Dare I say it? It would be a blot upon the everlasting glory if one believing soul were ever lost. Then were God's truth no longer sure, his faithfulness no longer firm, his love no more immutable, his power might be doubted, his changeableness would be proven, but beloved, it cannot be. Christ will not lose a sheep from his flock, nor will the comforter lose a spirit in which he has once begun to indwell. You can rest on this. Abide without doubt or fear in Christ, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be 
life be removed, but the covenant of his love shall not be removed from you, says the Lord that has mercy upon you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, dear hearer, and these divine privileges shall be yours forever. This is your divine security. This is your security, and it's not bound up in whether you believed enough. I know some of you struggle with that. Because in every congregation, there are people. And I get it. You want to be sure. You want to be sure. And we do. We, we want to know we're secure. But you will never, ever get security. If you're trying to base it in, did I believe enough? Was I sincere enough? Did I say the right words when I prayed the sinner's prayer? Is God saying, oh, you didn't say justified. <laughs> it's not where your security is based. Your security is based in the reality. And if the Spirit of God is in you, manifesting his fruit in your life, he is there because God the Father, who is our Savior, gave you to God the, the Son, who is your King, and sealed you with the Holy Spirit, who is our life, and none of that can ever be taken away. Your security is in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in the immutable character of God. So Jesus prays for restored glory and he acknowledges his own divine authority. Number three, Jesus defines eternal vitality. You say, vitality, I don't get that. I had to come up with a word that fit the pattern. So look at verse 3. Oh, we're back in 17. Okay, so let's take another run at this. Verse 2, even as you gave him eternal life, uh, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Beloved, you should highlight this in your Bible, put a big star next to it. Now, some of you are going, ah, right in my Bible? <laughs> it's, yes, it's a tool. Right in it. This is eternal life. Remember I said, it's not heavenly life, it's eternal life. It's not about heavenly or eternal necessarily. It's, it's about what the life is. What is the life? By vitality here, I simply mean life, eternal life. In this case, it is eternal vitality or eternal life. And it's important to notice first that our Lord says eternal life in the sense that it, he's speaking of its qualitative nature, not its quantitative nature. He's not talking about how long it is. He's talking about the, the quality of this life. I mean, listen, everybody lives forever. 
He's not talking about, I mean, yes, eternal life is forever and ever. On its face, it is that. But everybody lives forever. And some will live in the presence of the Lord, some in the lake of fire, according to Scripture. And so when I say eternal life is qualitative, I mean that Jesus is not talking about how long we will live there or even what the there is. But what kind of life it will be and what kind of life it is. It will be a life of eternal, notice what he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. It will be a life of continually growing in the knowledge of God. You say, I don't understand predestination. Good. <laughs> That's what eternity is for. You will progressively learn more and more about God. And if we could say that there is an end to eternity, which would shatter the definition of the term, but let's say we could point to what we might call the end or the furthest reaches of eternity. If you reach the end or the furthest reaches of eternity, you will not have yet understood or even come to be introduced to every aspect of the glorious character of God. It is eternal. It is eternal. And so we're not talking about the quantity of your eternal life. It is the quality. And what is that quality? It's the quality of knowing God. Jesus is talking about the quality of the life. It's, it is the privileged life. It is a life of privilege because it is a life of continually experiencing fellowship with God. Listen, to know, gnosko, is, is usually a relational word. It is a personal knowing. It is a knowing of another. Um, for example, in Genesis, Adam and Eve, the King James Version says, rightly, I didn't hear any amens from our King James folks. <laughs> Um, that Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. What does that mean? Oh, Eve, I've heard of her. She lives over in... No, 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 no. It's not that kind of knowing. It's knowing. There is an intimacy of knowledge that God describes as one flesh which is a picture of the unity that we have in Christ, that we have only tasted of. It is that kind of knowing, and it is a growing knowing, hindered by sin. Right now, you know, what, you know what hinders our knowing of one another more than anything else? I think it's the presence of sin, and it's the noetic effect of sin. You know what the noetic effect of sin is? Uh, the noetic effect has nothing to do with Noah, <laughs> It, it comes from the Greek word nous, which means to know. And it is the noetic effect of sin, theologians call it that, to describe the effects that sin has on your ability to think. We don't think rightly. 
We don't think rightly about one another. We don't evaluate circumstances rightly, apart from the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we lose trust in one another. We hurt one another. The presence of sin also. We hurt one. Listen, sin is everywhere. It's not just out there, and it's not just the things that I do. It's it's in my head. It's in my heart. It's in that immaterial part of me that is the real me. And it affects everything. And it hinders our knowing one another. But imagine this. Imagine if you could, if you could rid yourself of all external sin and all internal sin and all the effects of sin upon your heart so that you think as purely and truthfully as God does. And you act as truly and purely as God does. And the person that you know or the people that you know, all of them do the same. And all of you are in relationship with the God who embodies all of that. You will spend eternity getting to know him. There will be no hindrances in your doing so. That's what eternal life is. His eternal fellowship with God. And it is me having to look into books to learn about God. It is God saying, come, I invite you. Come, sit at my feet, ask me questions. Listen to me. This is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The word true here means genuine. The only genuine God. Isn't that interesting? There are counterfeit gods, and there is one true God. But it, it, honestly, it, it is not good enough to say, I believe in one God. And the Muslims say that. And you might say that you believe in the Buddhist version of God, which is weird because there's no really personhood to that version. Or you might say you believe in the Muslim view or the Unitarian view of God or, or somebody else's view, the Mormon view of God. But the only genuine God identifies himself as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And someone will say, well, that's really narrow and that's, that's really bigoted, the person who said it. But beloved, it is our Lord who said it. It is our Lord who said it. As S. Lewis Johnson puts it, this is one of those uncomfortable onlys in the teachings of Jesus. We believe it not because the world approves of it, but because our Lord said it. He is king, and we trust him with everything he says. And Jesus says that eternal life is defined and experienced by knowing the only genuine God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, even in this, Jesus is glorified. And so Jesus asks for restored glory. Jesus acknowledges his divine authority. Jesus defines eternal vitality. And then finally, Jesus announces his completed ministry. This is truly amazing when you think about it. God put Adam on the earth and gave him a very significant ministry and responsibility. But he failed. And he plunged men into sin. 
And God put Israel in the world and gave the nation of Israel a very specific and profound ministry. They were to be the light of the world, the light to the Gentiles, revealing the glory of God. And they failed through their self-will and through their idolatry. God established a priesthood to make atonement for sinners by killing sheep and goats and bulls. But the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And then, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus Christ into the world and gave him a significant mission in ministry. And there were parts of it that make up all of the failings of everyone else that he sent into the world and failed. The amazing thing, however, is God sent Christ to earth and gave him a significant ministry, but he did not fail. He did what Adam could not do. He did what Israel failed to do. He did what Moses in the law could not accomplish. He did what all the priests and all of their sacrifice combined throughout the ages could never have accomplished. He lived a perfectly righteous life and thus fulfilled the requirements of the law. And then he died a horrifically shameful and bloody death. And he did it to fulfill the penalty of the law. And he did it for our sakes. For our sakes, he offered himself up a once-for-all sacrifice in order to bring many sons to glory. That was his work. That was his work. It was the redeeming work. It was his atoning work, his purifying work, his saving work. And he did it in perfect obedience to the Father and out of a perfect love for those whom he would save. This was Jesus' work. It was a perfect work, a majestic work, a stupendous work, and now it is his finished work. I remember when I was going to Dallas Seminary, and everybody talked about the finished work of Christ. Oh, the finished work of Christ, the finished work of Christ. Whenever people talked about his you know, salvation, they were talking about the finished work of Christ, and it became so cliche to me. And then I was studying this passage, oh my word, this is where that came from. No wonder they talk about it all the time. The finished work of Christ, that is our hope and his glory. He finished it. It was a work which, for which he deserves all glory. I was, I was in my quiet time this week, and I was reading in First in Timothy one seventeen. My, my, my whole time, sometimes I'll do five or six verses, some, sometimes one. And sometimes I preach on one. <laughs> but in this verse, while writing to Timothy about Jesus, Paul breaks out in doxology. He's talking to him about Jesus. And here's what he's saying about Jesus. He's actually talking about himself. And he says, um, I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of the worst. I was a persecutor, a blasphemer. But God, but Christ saved me to demonstrate to the world his perfect patience towards sinners, which I take to mean Paul saying, listen, if you can be that patient with me, you've got no problem because it's a lot easier to be patient with you 
if you knew how wretched I am. And then he breaks out into this doxology. And this is what he says. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And you would think, he's speaking, surely got to be speaking about the Father. No, no, no. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. And it's strange because it's not even at the end of a chapter. It's not at the end of the book. It's right in the middle of what he was telling Timothy about the grace of Christ. Beloved, verse 4 of John 17 is a verse about the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. Look at it, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is, this is revealing to us the eternal sonship of Jesus. If there was any question about the essence and character of this man, this puts it to rest. Who had glory with the Father before the world began? Nobody. But Jesus. And so Jesus is asking what he asked for in verse 1. He's asking that the Father restore to him the position of glory that he laid aside in order to come to earth. He's saying, God, Father, give me back the place I had before we began this mediatorial work. Restore to me my rightful position on the throne of your eternal Son and do it for your own eternal glory. It's the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. It's his eternal sonship. And it, it's based on his finished work. The most amazing thing that ever happened on the planet is that God sent his only begotten son, the eternal son, into the world on an impossible mission. And he accomplished it. He completed it. And even though at this point in the narrative, his suffering has not even begun relative to the cross, and yet he nevertheless speaks of it as if it has already been endured. So certain is he that he will indeed endure it. But it would be many hours from this moment, not many hours, when Jesus would cry out with a loud voice, it is what? Finished. In the Aramaic, tetelestai, Paid in full. Paid in full. The debt is paid. And it was paid by him. Because that's what he was sent to do. This is his glory. This is his finished work, which the Father had given him to do. And throughout the ministry, his ministry, the ministry of his sufferings, he, the son of sorrows, longed to regain that which he had which we had given up on behalf of sinners. He longed to have restored to him 
the glory that he once had with the Father. Now Christ would exchange the cross for a crown. Now God would raise him up and restore to him the glory which he had with the Father before the creation of the world. Oh, beloved, behold by faith the glory of Jesus Christ. Behold the glory of Christ. Many years after writing this gospel, the apostle John was permitted to see, as it were, behind the veil. What happened after the ascension? And he was permitted to reveal it to us. And so turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And here's what we read. Beginning with verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them, the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. By the way, usually for Greek speakers, 10,000 was the ultimate number. If you said 10,000, you meant the ultimate calculation, right? John doesn't use 10,000s. He says, myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying, I mean, imagine angels and People and fish and every created thing saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and forever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders kept falling down before him in worship. This is the glory of Jesus This is the glory of the mediator Messiah who has accomplished his work. He finished the work which the Father has given him so that you and I could be saved. This is the Jesus we adore and will adore forever. He is God's only begotten Son, our Messiah. He is glorious. And we have the privilege of knowing him and worshiping him forever. Beloved, we've only begun, but this is the real Lord's Prayer. It is a glorious prayer. It is a majestic prayer, a prayer that he alone was qualified to pray, and by it we see his glory. Father, we are unworthy of seeing his glory. And when I dive into these things, especially here with your people behind this pulpit, I feel like Moses asking for what we do not understand. Show me your glory. 
And he warned Moses, I can't show you all of it, or you would die. But I will show you a little. And by faith, Father, we see a little bit of the glory of your Son and a little bit of the glory of the Spirit and a small amount of the glory of you, Father. And it is overwhelming and delightful and satisfying. Oh, satisfy us, Lord, in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days because you are our God, our Savior, and Jesus is our King, our Messiah. And the Holy Spirit lives within us to give us your life. We are of all people most privileged. We are richer than we could possibly begin to imagine. Father, help us to taste and see how good you are and to feast on you and to eat your flesh, as it were, and drink your blood, Jesus says, to take you in, to internalize your majesty and glory so that it changes our affections and our desires and pushes out every unholy thing and replaces it with that which is good and perfect and satisfying. Oh, Father, be glorified in us as you sanctify us and make us more like Christ through these things, we pray in Jesus' name.